Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. We've got a sweet show for you this Valentine's weekend. Stories about cookies. Girl Scouts who personalize their digital cookie site with their own picture or video sold double the number of cookies. Why Girl Scout cookie sales going digital raises questions for one mom. Plus, the creative transformation of the fortune cookie into a tool for activism. We had the BLM stenciled in gold on the cookie, and the insides were quotes of civil rights leaders. But first... Team USA delivering in snowboard, making history on the halfpipe. If you've been watching the Winter Olympics, you've probably caught sight of some of the amazing California athletes. Chloe Kim defending her victory in 2018, starting with a monster run right out of the gate. In fact, 29 of the athletes on Team USA call California home. That's more than any other state. Well, we're going to rewind back to 1960, when California actually hosted the Winter Games near Lake Tahoe. One of the world's most majestic sports events. In the spectacular beginning, in a spectacular setting, high in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Back in 1960, the Winter Olympics were pretty small compared to today. Just 30 countries instead of the 91 competing in Beijing right now. There were far fewer events, too. But what happened in Tahoe that year left its mark, and not just on future Olympics. It changed the course of winter sports in the West. But how California won the bid to host those Olympic Games is kind of a miracle. It's a David and Goliath story. It's an underdog story. It's got razzle-dazzle. It's got controversy. It's got romance. Reporter Chloe Veltman takes us to the Sierra now to revisit the history of California's Winter Olympics. Osvaldo and Eddie and Cenas live in Olympic Valley, right where the 1960 Olympics took place. Back then, Osvaldo was a dashing member of Argentina's ski team. And uh, when I arrived in 1960 in the Argentine Olympic team, I did the three Alpine events, downhill, giant slalom and slalom. Eddie, who's from the East Bay but was living in San Francisco at the time, was among the clatch of young multilingual women drafted in to make the visiting dignitaries feel welcome. We greeted all the International Olympic Committee members, picked them up at the airport. So we were given these red Pontiacs to drive, went to a lot of parties and receptions. Eddie and Osvaldo met while out skiing, soon after the Games came to an end. He was getting on the chairlift, and I skied up to him and I said, are you a single? I could have taken the next chair, but <laughs> <clears throat> that wouldn't be fun. This is what I always said, but last time I was single. 
The international sports event that kick-started their romance happened more than six decades ago. Yet the octogenarian couple talk about the Tahoe Olympics with a sense of immediacy and warmth. It's like when you meet a wonderful family, <laughs> you know. Eddie recalls the night she and her friend Marsha snuck into the Olympic Village. The facility which housed the athletes for the duration of the event was officially off-limits to nearly everyone else. There was a well-worn path through the woods into the Olympic Village, and every, every night they had performances. Marsha said, we'll just say we're press. So we did. And Osvaldo, who isn't just a former Olympian, but also sings, plays guitar and yodels, remembers a folk song he sang in a talent contest for athletes one night. Osvaldo and Eddie say the 1960 Olympics weren't just memorable for the participants. The event had a lasting impact worldwide because of the many firsts and innovations that happened there. Technologies that we consider commonplace today were pioneered or developed at those games, like instant replay and elaborate timekeeping processes. The electric starting gate for the downhill run, for instance, immediately sets in motion the timing devices at the finish, including this flashing clock mounted on the judge's stand. Cutting-edge IT systems. All the machinery of modern data processing is put to use. Punched cards, random access memories, high-speed printers, and a computer. Even the refrigeration system for the speed skating oval was a game changer. It's the first artificially refrigerated one ever used in Olympic competition. And then there was the involvement of Walt Disney. As the pageantry chairman at the 1960 Olympics, the entertainment king and winter sports enthusiast turned the event into a theatrical extravaganza worthy of TV. Victory ceremonies crown each day with pomp and pageantry. In fact, this was the first time the Olympics was televised live nationwide. Disney's team drafted in choirs and bands and created giant white statues of athletes that looked like they were carved out of ice. At various points, they released fireworks, balloons and even pigeons into the sky. There's a lot of mythologizing around the 1960 Olympics. There's the story of the US men's ice hockey team's triumph against the fearsome Soviets, a big deal during the Cold War. And then there's the one about how the games even made it to that obscure corner of the Sierra Nevada in the first place. There was nothing there, so they had a clean slate, and to make that into an Olympic site was quite a feat. But what tends to get lost in accounts of the 1960 Olympic Games is the fact that they took place on unceded indigenous lands, stolen land that had belonged to tribal peoples for thousands of years. While people view this land as pristine and untouched, this land was actually shaped by indigenous peoples and our cultures. This is Herman Fillmore. He's the Culture and Language Resources Director for the Washu Tribe of Nevada and California. He says at the time of the Olympics, his tribe was in the middle of a decades-long lawsuit against the federal government for the theft of roughly six million acres of Washu lands, including the area where the Olympics were held. The Washu had never formally entered into a treaty, nor received compensation for their land. While Washu people were undergoing a court case to um, 
gain any sort of restitution for the taking of our land. We kind of coincidentally have the Olympics where other nations are freely welcome to WashU homelands, um, a place that WashU people were no longer allowed to be. Both the tribe and local historians say the Olympic organizers did not consult Washu people about their plans. To make matters worse, owners named the resort that hosted the games Squaw Valley, a racist and misogynistic term used for indigenous women. Settlers had given the land that name in the mid-19th century. The resort kept it until September 2021, when management rebranded it Palisades Tahoe. Tribal members had been asking for the derogatory name to be removed for years. Despite Indigenous people's long claim to this land, most historical accounts of the Tahoe Olympics begin with a picture of a sparkling white landscape, practically untouched by human hands. There was almost nothing here. One lift, two rope toes, a lodge, and a dirt road leading to it off the highway. And there were only two year-round families that lived in the valley itself. David Antonucci is an avid cross-country skier, longtime Tahoe resident, and the author of the book Snowball's Chance, the story of the 1960 Olympic Winter Games. He takes us back to the waning days of 1954. Alex Cushing, who was a co-founder of what was then known as the Squaw Valley Ski Area, uh, was reading the paper. And Cushing saw that the city of Reno was submitting a bid to host the 1960 Winter Olympics. He figured, why not pitch his own little ski resort? So he hurriedly put together a proposal, got a few rich and powerful friends on board, and made his case before the U.S. Olympic Committee in New York. And much to the surprise of everybody, the U.S. Olympic Committee decided to nominate Squaw Valley to host the 1960 Winter Olympics. But Cushing still had to travel to Paris and convince the International Olympic Committee that Tahoe should host the Games. Even though he had the backing of the state of California and the federal government, his chances looked pretty slim. He's being told, forget it. You've got no chance. People in the Olympic community said Innsbruck, Austria has it tied up. You're just wasting your time. Cushing and his team worked their contacts around the globe. The lobbying effort included the then unorthodox step of printing their proposal in Spanish, not just the official Olympic languages of English and French, and meeting with International Olympic Committee representatives in South America. To get their support and to make sure they would be in attendance and could vote. The plan worked. After two nail-biting rounds of voting, Dave says California prevailed, beating Innsbruck by just a couple of votes. And the world was shocked. If you visit Palisades Tahoe, the mountains are just as awe-striking today as they likely were back in 1960. David Antonucci points out where some of the Olympic races took place. If we look up this canyon here, this was the uh, men's downhill course that started up on that peak, which is called Palisades. And the Olympic logo, with its five colourful interlocking circles symbolising global unity, is a favourite location for a photo op. But only a smattering of the original Olympic-era structures remain, like the Olympic Village Lodge, part of the building complex that was used to house the athletes for the duration of the Games. What a cool building. I love the ceilings. So high. Yeah, it's very uh, mid-century. 
We're standing in the Olympic Village Lodge's cavernous dining hall. It's where the athletes came together to socialise, eat and enjoy evening performances by some of the leading acts of the day like Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. Snow, 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 snow. Walt Disney arranged for entertainment every night and that was held in this room. But this historic building, like the others, isn't in great shape. The dining room roof is currently propped up by steel columns. After the Olympics, the facilities were originally to be operated by the state of California through its Department of Parks and Recreation as a, as a public winter recreation site, but it never became viable. Dave says the state eventually sold the buildings off bit by bit to developers and investors. And gradually it all ended up under control of the ski area. The current resort owner proposed a plan in 2016 that involves demolishing at least some of the historic buildings in order to make way for new development, including high-rise lodging and an indoor water park. Local anti-development activists managed to stall these plans in court, but Dave says it's only a matter of time before the historic buildings come down. Something has to happen. These buildings are at the end of their useful life. Ever since the 1980s, a variety of local groups have been working to bring the Olympics back to the Sierra Nevada. Tonight, some of the top regional leaders met to determine if Lake Tahoe can host the Games. In this case, I put the idea to Eddie and Osvaldo Encinas, the couple we met earlier in the story. After all, they have nothing but positive memories of the 1960 event. Would you want the Olympics to come back to this part of the world? I don't know. It's just so different right now. Well, I think I know it's what... just too much, and the cost is going to be is horrible. Yeah. Billions. Yeah. We, we, so we don't want to do there's... that. The most recent efforts fell by the wayside in 2018, but that doesn't put a definitive end to the possibility of the Games returning at some point down the line. In the meantime, Eddie and Osvaldo are part of a group working to salvage the region's Olympic history as best as they can. They're planning to build a 20,000 square foot museum at the entrance to Olympic Valley, right where the Olympic torch still burns. For the California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman in Olympic Valley. Of course, it's not just Olympic season, it's Thin Mint season. That time of year here in California when Girl Scouts, armed with decadent treats, try to sell as many boxes as they can to meet their cookie quotas. And those cookies are big business. This time of year, sales of Girl Scout cookies top Oreos and Chips Ahoy. And Girl Scouts aren't just going door to door anymore. They've expanded into online sales. Using the digital cookie platform is easy and convenient for everyone, including cookie customers. Your sales don't stop when you're using the digital cookie site. It was heaven. Scouts can now send you a link to order your cookies, and the boxes arrive at your doorstep. No Girl Scout visit required. Now let's calculate what you did through online sales, your digital cookie sales. Okay, so you sold three boxes of? Adventure Falls. Okay. Nine boxes of Thin Mints. <laughs> 
That's Anatantopoulos and her nine-year-old daughter, Gianna, tracking new online cookie orders. Anna is a former education reporter for the California Report, and she used to be a Girl Scout herself. She says while she's trying to be open-minded about the virtual cookie world, she's got some questions about it. My daughter Gianna is perfect Girl Scouts material. She's bright-eyed and has that can-do scouting spirit. She joined just a few months ago, and so a few nights a week, she practices her cookie sales pitch with script in hand. Hi, it's Girl Scouts cookie time. This year, we have a great new cookie. It's called the Ventureful. It's caramel-flavored with a hint of sea salt. Would you like to buy a few boxes? When I was a scout in my hometown of Palmdale, I remember long hours spent knocking on doors and standing outside grocery stores. My goal at the time was to earn a coveted cookie patch for my sash. But looking back, I now realize that I was really building a sense of community, which is why I feel conflicted about digital cookie sales. For generations, Girl Scouts have been canvassing their neighborhoods. It all started in 1917, when a troop in Muskogee, Oklahoma, whipped up batches of homemade sugar cookies. By the 1960s, door-to-door cookie sales were ingrained in American culture. What's cooking? Democracy, self-reliance, and good citizenship. God, so long ago. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been been the 60s and 70s. That's my next-door neighbor, Laura Harvey. She's a retired teacher. We live in a suburban neighborhood in Sacramento. And like most of the ladies on my block, Laura spent her childhood as a scout. We would go door-to-door through our neighborhood, and we always went with a partner. Um, it was just it was just very sweet going around with a wagon and, and delivering all the cookies, and they would all be so excited to get them. Laura says she was a shy and gawky kid, but door-to-door sales helped her feel more comfortable and confident talking to people, especially adults. You know, you're wearing your uniform, and that was so special. And so you're presenting yourself as a Girl Scout, and people respond very positively to that. The Girl Scouts believe the cookie program teaches leadership, goal-setting, and money management. But others think it feeds into America's competitive corporate culture. With online cookie sales, my concern is whether we're depriving scouts of opportunities to hone their public speaking skills, build self-confidence, and learn about their community. So I called up my local Girl Scouts office and got connected with Suzanne Olson. She's with Girl Scouts of Central California, and she says that's just not the case. She says scouts can still choose to sell door-to-door if they want. They're still getting the skills that are traditional and part of what Girl Scouting has always been about. Olson says the move to digital sales came about five years ago as more families wanted tech-savvy ways to sell cookies. Now, because of the pandemic, online cookie sales are skyrocketing. Olson tells me in today's world, a girl's online community is just as important as her physical community. This is really the direction that our world is going in, um, in the digital world. And so really what it provides is sort of this hybrid model for those who choose to engage in the digital side. Scouts also learn how to organize virtual cookie booths and post their own videos on social media. 
Olson says those skills are essential for today's entrepreneurs. So does that mean door-to-door cookie sales will soon come to an end? Well, not if this mom can help it. Yes, I'm slowly introducing my daughter to the virtual cookie world, but for now, we're hitting the pavement and knocking on doors, albeit with masks, hand sanitizer, and six feet of distance. Hi, it's Girl Scouts cookie time. My name is Gianna. I'm a brownie Girl Scout. This is my first year selling cookies. Are you interested in any? You bet we are. Can we get a Caramel Delight? Caramel Delight? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's get four boxes. For the California Report, I'm Anna Tintopoulos in Sacramento. And now to a very different kind of cookie operation. On the outskirts of Chinatown in Oakland, you can hear the rhythmic pulsing of hot ovens and the steady screech of revolving griddles. The sound hits your ears before your nose picks up the smell of sweet cookie batter. The cookies we make, we want them to carry a meaning for people to spread joy and positivity. That's Alicia Wong. She and her mother, Jamin, say joy and positivity are the not-so-secret ingredients that have kept their business thriving. Our intern, Izzy Bloom, takes us inside the Oakland Fortune Factory now, where this mother-daughter duo churns out thousands of handmade cookies every day. Lunar New Year has kept Alicia and her mom, Jamin, busy, working 20-hour days. Alicia says it all starts with that sweet batter. My mom makes a batter every morning. She puts all the ingredients into a giant mixer. When the batter is smooth, it gets funneled into a tube and then pumped out as circles onto hot metal plates. The plates revolve clockwise into a furnace where they bake for about three minutes. And as they come out of the oven, they are soft and pliable for a few seconds. And during that time, we would quickly take a fortune put it in the center, fold it up, and pinch it into a fortune cookie shape. And then they are individually wrapped and sealed. But these cookies aren't made for the end of your meal at a restaurant. They're carefully handcrafted with unique flavors, from strawberry to Sichuan peppercorn chocolate, and ornamented with festive pearls and sugar crystals. And some honor the new year with the Chinese character for tiger, embellished in shimmery gold. Others have chocolate tiger stripes. The tiger is very special for me because it's my mother's year. And the tiger really reminds me of my mom because she's a very determined, fearless woman who is very protective of her family. Jamin is sifting through the cookies and smiles up warmly at her daughter as Alicia translates for her. I'm happy together. Happy. She says that she loves that our cookies are a perfect union of Chinese-American culture. It's like a, the cookie itself is the best of both worlds. Jamin grew up in China, but she moved to the U.S. in 1999 and raised Alicia in Oakland. 
not far from the Oakland Fortune Factory, which had a different owner at the time. One of my fondest memories is my mom picking me up after school, uh, grabbing a $2 bag of the broken cookies, which we still have, and it's still $2. So <laughs> I could just go ham, eating, eating the cookies. It was so satisfyingly crunchy. I still love the texture. Six years ago, the Oakland Fortune Factory was about to close down. So Jamin decided to buy it. She'd never even run a business before, and she doesn't speak English. So she'd rely on Alicia for help, but she was in college on the East Coast. It was incredibly difficult trying to run a business that I am not there for across the country with a three-hour time difference. After Alicia graduated from college, she decided to join her mom in running the fortune cookie business full-time. Now it's a whole family affair. Alicia's husband and her sisters are all involved as well. Alicia is taking the business in a whole new direction, infusing it with her passion to support social justice movements like Black Lives Matter. We had the BLM stenciled in gold on the cookie, and the insides were quotes of civil rights leaders to try to inspire discussion Alicia says they were one of the first businesses in Chinatown to stand up and support the Black Lives Matter movement. She says that's because of what her mom would always tell her growing up. Uh, she says, well, aside from trying to make money, you have to do something good for society. You have to do something good for others. She wants our cookies to be able to promote um, peace and joy, love between people. But keeping that peace has been difficult over the last few years. A 91-year-old man was violently shoved to the ground in Oakland's Chinatown. The attacks come as a growing number of hate incidents target Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. You know, there's been a lot of like viral videos of like non-Asian individuals attacking or harassing Asian individuals. It really hurts every time I see someone in our community get hurt because that could have been my mom, that could have been my grandpa or my dad. And it makes me incredibly angry that it's still happening. In 2020, Alicia said a group of people came and vandalized Chinatown, smashing the Oakland Fortune Factory's storefront window. It was very distressing. It was very scary because we've never experienced our store getting vandalized before. And we've always felt incredibly safe. But she says she doesn't want to give in to fear. So she's using the business to engage more with her community instead. This year, they're donating a portion of their Lunar New Year cookie sales to the Asian Pacific Fund, which works to address anti-Asian racism. I think the biggest joy that I get out of running the business right now is finally finding a sort of purpose and fulfillment in my cookies. And sharing with her customers the same joy she felt as a kid when her mom would pick her up from school and hand her a bag of those crunchy sweet treats. For The California Report, I'm Izzy Bloom in Oakland. We're starting a new series here on the California Report magazine, all about how Californians like Alicia Wong are finding resilience and joy right now. 
This is life and life is the full spectrum. It's life and death and stress and happiness and joy. We're all together on this and we got to stay positive every day. Here's to spreading joy and to having that keep us healthy. Cheers to that. People are compassionate. People have dreams. And when you put all this together, it's pretty amazing to be alive. I love singing. I love music. It's so healing and it's so powerful. I have made the decision in life to actively invest in joy. So how can I not invest in hope? We'd love to hear what's bringing you happiness these days. You can send us an email at calreportmag at kqed.org. That's calreportmag at kqed.org. You can also leave us a message on our voicemail at 415-636-9801. That's 415-636-9801. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer-director. And our audio engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Olivia Allen-Price, Amanda Font, and Izzy Bloom. I'm Sasha Coca. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.